If you look at what's going on in the world, it's really hard to be an optimist. But I really fundamentally believe that creativity is in and of itself an optimistic act, which is this belief that you can make things better for the world by the things that you create. And I look at being a product manager as like you're basically inspiring people to create. And so you have to have optimism that you can find a problem that people have, that you can design a solution to solve that problem, and that you can make their day-to-day -day life better. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. Super excited to have our next guest, Michael Sippy, who runs product at Medium. Before that, Mike led product team at Twitter and co-founded his own social platform. It's been uh, such a great journey so far, and I've known Michael for a while. So welcome to the show. So excited to have you here with us. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this all day. So... Um, You've had a busy few weeks. You guys launched a bunch of stuff. You know, the past few months have been a little weird. Uh, tell us how you're doing. It's interesting. Like the question that like I've been asking folks, like when I talk, is like, how are you doing today? Right? Because like, it's all about like, what, like, how are you feeling today? Today I am doing really, really well. It's been a crazy few months. I was actually in New York in normal times. We have an office in San Francisco. We've got an office in New York. We've got a bunch of people that are distributed. And I was in our New York office the first week of March and flew home, like basically working with teams there and collaborating with folks, and flew home on Friday, March 6th. And it's right before kind of everything went into kind of shelter-in-place mode, at least in California, and then a little bit later in New York. And time has been super fluid. And we've launched a bunch of stuff. We've transitioned the company to being like essentially entirely distributed, like everybody has. And it's been a really interesting, it's been a really interesting few months, but we're doing really well. Like I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm like, I feel really lucky. My family is healthy. I have two teenage daughters who are both here at home with us, one home from college. who's not terribly happy about it, but like, you know, look, I've got a great job. We have a house and a roof over our heads and we're all healthy. And so doing pretty well, but it's been, it's definitely been an interesting three months. So and I think it's going to be another interesting six coming up. So it's uh, or more. Or more, so, yeah. Yeah, doing all right. How long have you, um, I, I never, I don't think I've ever asked you that, but how long have you been at Medium? I've been at Medium, it'll be three years this summer. We, we sold uh, Talk Show, which was the startup that I had founded uh, prior to joining Medium. We sold Talk Show to Medium and joined in July of uh, 2017. So it's been three years. That's awesome. It's been fun. Yeah. And it's just been this uh, crazy ride of working on a product that I love with a team that I adore and trying to solve, I think, a really, really hard problem, which is how do you help build a user-generated content platform that lets people express themselves and share ideas and connect and discover with a business model that is sustainable and actually supports quality writing. And so... That's the that's the the hard challenge that we've set out for ourselves because um, it's a worthy one to go. What's that business model? I know that it's actually you know finding the right business model, especially in media, has been is challenging for many companies, and I think you guys are onto something. So Medium um, Medium is an open platform where anybody can come and write, and uh, essentially we 
bundle stories and content and we make it available to, uh, to subscribers via subscription. Writers can choose to uh, opt to put their stories behind our paywall in order to um, get access to distribution as well as monetization. So writers can earn mm. on the Medium platform by, by choosing to participate in our writer partner program. And then we sell a subscription um, that includes that content plus some original content that we produce as well as content that we license uh, for five bucks a month. And that's it. There are no ads. We don't sell anybody's data. And uh, we do our best to create a really clean reading and writing experience for people to really engage with quality stories and great ideas. And that's that's our mission. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I write a lot about marketing. And I will say that I write on our blog. I write on LinkedIn. I put stuff on social media. And there's nothing I love more than posting something on Medium. It's just like the... And it really is the product experience, which I think uh, goes to you and your team. There's like this joy of like when I write something, I get like a little tingles when uh, the tingles you get from using a good product. Yeah. How did you guys build that? I think it's so hard and I'm sure so many other companies have tried and tried to copy you. And I, I don't think from my perspective, anyone has really like gotten that. I can tell you it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of it happened before I joined the company full-time. There was I did some consulting for the company way back when, but and so I will not take credit for a lot of the, the kind of the core of the writing experience, which um, we're doing some work on now, but it is, it is actually like the core idea when, um, when Medium was started was let's create a great place for people to create and to write and to make it feel if you solve that problem for people of, for the creator, they will create great stories. And if you build that in a networked way, like then you can have people discover those stories. And so there was a lot of engineering and focus and attention on building what really um, is a world-class writing experience for an individual writer of essentially like feeling at home in a WYSIWYG environment, knowing what your story is going to look like, um, having that control and, and um, kind of sense of superpower that you can create something yeah. beautiful for your readers in with very, very little effort. And like I've spent a lot of time working on um, in kind of social products and content management systems and blogging. And, and the thing that the, that the early medium team really nailed was that experience. Because if you've ever struggled with essentially, you know, writing in Markdown and publishing yeah. and like actually going back and forth and translating and making sure it looks good, like I read a lot of my own personal notes in Markdown because, like, I'm a nerd. But, like, making that, like, for normal humans, making that transition and making that, like, work really well is really difficult. And so um, that focus of, like, make it really simple and seamless to make something that is beautiful, that you're proud of, is, uh, I think, really drove a lot of the early success of the platform. That's, that's really awesome. So that brings me to, like, the question, I mean, you... you I remember we were at this dinner and you were telling me you were uh, one of, uh, you've started blogging very early on and you're one of the world's first bloggers in the 90s. <laughs> Tell us stories from that. How did you even get started before blogging was a thing? I was an English literature major undergrad and had moved to San Francisco thinking that I had worked for a couple of years and then go to grad school for English Lit. And I actually fell, literally kind of fell into a job in a software company that had nothing to do with like social or anything now, like not consumer at all. So enterprise software. And um, this was early nineties. And at the time I had actually like my, 
I was blessed as a child. My parents brought me an IBM PC Junior when I was like 13 years old, and I had a TI-99 before that. And so I really loved technology and I loved computers. And so I was lucky to work at the software company, but I was really a writer at heart. And so I was on the well, which is an early um, online community. You know, you dial in with a terminal and you did all this like crazy stuff and basically like was chatting and talking with people really early social social experiment with like a dial-up bulletin board system. And then a lot of the folks that were involved in the well launched Wired Magazine. And so I was a really early reader of Wired and I got to know some of the people at Wired and this was like 92, 93-ish, I think. And then the web hit and, of course, like was reading all about it. And I remember literally the first time I saw, the first time I saw a browser and it was mind-blowing because I was using Telnet and I was using Gopher and I was like engaging in this like full text experience to actually have like a point-and-click interface to the web. I was like, this is where I want to spend my life. And um, there are two things that I did. One is that I decided, like, no, I'm not going back to grad school to be a professor <laughs> of English literature. Like, this is where it's at, like, even for words. The second is that I need to teach myself HTML. So I started to write online and started and taught myself HTML in order to just, like, understand this technology. And then basically it was like, all right, what am I going to write about? And I just started writing. I had, a new, I had, like, some email stuff that I was working on. And I was just, like, writing thoughts about what I was experiencing online. And so... That turned into a kind of, before we called them blogs, they were like personal homepages, but that turned into a thing called Stating the Obvious, which uh, came online in August of 1995. And, I, uh, and I've been writing online ever since. And then like, there were a bunch of things along the way. I mean, basically they started as, you know, 500 word essays. And then I um, started to do link blogging um, and really helped like help evangelize link blogging, which is basically like what everybody does on Twitter and Facebook now. And that was a, that was a lot of fun. Like basically there was a section on my site that I called filtered for purity, which was oh, that's awesome. all about um, like the best links that you could find online. And at the time there weren't that many links. Um, and so it was easier to find the good things because there, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't much to go browse. So, so that was fun. And there was a, there was a community of people that were doing it that are, you know, some of them are still doing it. Matt Howie, who's now at Slack, who ran Metafilter, Jason Kotke, who's still blogging at Kotke.org. There's uh, folks that have gone on to do kind of other kind of amazing things. Molly Steenson, who's now a professor of like AI and ethics at Carnegie Mellon, um, and um, Ev Williams, who's now my boss. So like a bunch of a uh, bunch of us were kind of early on in that scene. Well, and you still are in some sense. I mean, you are, yeah. you're, you know, you are um, making blogging better and you still blog. I was just reading one of your blogs about Medium that you published, I think, a few days ago. Still blogging. And I like, I love writing and I love sharing ideas and I love like getting feedback from people. And it's, it's just a passion. Like, I don't think I'll ever stop. Like, I was actually looking and it's like looking at my Mac today and looking at the, like all the apps in my dock and probably like, the vast majority of them are things that process text in some way, right? Browser, email client, three or four different notes apps, like a to-do list. Like it's all about text. And so I have this like deep, intimate relationship with like how do you actually produce and consume text on a screen? And that's basically what I've spent my career working on for the last however many years. It's so interesting. I've always uh, had a hard time with text. Like I'm such a visual person. So if you read my blogs, more than half are images. <laughs> it's, it's just so interesting how different brains work and like the passions that we each have. It's a really, I don't know, it's fun. And the, like this is, 
I look and like I still think we have lots of room for improvement in terms of how people create and share uh, their ideas online, like and so and how they get discovered and how they get like remixed and added to and commented on and all the things that you can do with those. Like we're still only scratching the surface, um, and I think we still have a hangover from a couple hundred years of of actual like book and magazine publishing and newspaper publishing that we're we haven't quite freed ourselves from those um, kind of metaphors and formats. And so still lots of work to do to make, to make experiences like really interesting and fun. You were a writer and you would think that someone who loves writing would probably go more towards marketing, but you ended up in product and you end up a product at Twitter. What was the journey? How did you end up there? Uh, and then, t then also tell us about the transition from Twitter to medium, which probably makes more sense. When I started my career, um, I was in marketing, actually, um, got hired as like a marketing assistant, doing a little bit of writing, doing a little bit of stuff, but also like just a lot of organizing. And again, this was this was an enterprise software company. So we were doing conferences and was writing material for that and organizing, helping to organize those. And then I had some really great mentors and bosses who um, who had done product management at Hewlett Packard. And for folks that are kind of hist like historians of the kind of craft and the job of product management, a lot of it can be traced back to the, like where it really started to take shape was at HP in the eighties. And so as like a discipline, so these two folks who were my boss and my boss's boss had both been at HP. And we also had uh, a couple of board members who had worked in consumer software and had done um, really helped to evangelize what we now call kind of customer validation and um, what then Frank Robinson was calling market validation. And I learned, I got an opportunity when I was, this was at Advent Software, I got an opportunity at Advent to essentially be a kind of like now we'd call it an associate PM. I think actually the title then was junior PM and work on a, on a small um, kind of add-on product to our main product. And I fell in love with it, which is really understanding who the customer is and like, and kind of what their needs were translating that in a way for engineers to build a new product and then being able to communicate the benefits of that and ship something to users and then like know if it works or whether or not. And then, you know, the feedback loop back then was we would ship a new version of the product once a year, right? And so the feedback loops now are you ship new <laughs> things every day. <laughs> right. And so that was the feedback loop is like you'd, like you'd gather a bunch of requirements because we were shipping, literally shipping software on floppy disks, right? So... It was a it was a really different time, and and I joined at a time I joined this company in 1991, and I left in '96, and by then we were doing things on the internet, and so that was actually a really fun time, and got to participate in some of that. But I just love the discipline of kind of sitting in the middle and having to translate, and a lot of good product work is really about storytelling and being able to paint a picture, both for the customer and uh, for the team that you work with. Essentially, like, what do PMs spend a lot of their day doing? It's like literally writing user stories, right? So, and user stories have a protagonist and they have a problem that they want to solve and they have an outcome. And you can draw that at a product or company level arc. You can draw that at a feature arc. You can draw that at an individual, like at a smaller arc of an individual, like interaction or button or task that they want to accomplish. And that narrative storytelling is like what connects the dots for me about doing product work with kind of my passion for reading and writing. And so, yeah. And then, you know, along the way, I taught myself some HTML and some CSS and a little bit of JavaScript and know enough in it 
to like stub my toe um, every once in a while when I want to go build something. It's been a fun path. That's how, that's kind of how I got into product. And then I've had like this kind of meandering career. But since like 2004, I joined Six Apart, which was an early blogging platform company. And I ran product and design there and then did that until uh, we sold that to Video Egg and created something else. And then I went to Twitter. Yeah, but basically like just fell in love with this role of product and kind of sitting in between, sitting in between users and engineering and kind of facilitating engineering and design and kind of figuring out what problems to solve and why we should solve them and what we should go do. Tell us about some of your favorite like products that you helped launch or even features that maybe drove a lot of growth, things that were maybe unexpected. Tell us some stories. One that I was, um, I was involved in, but really was driven by a colleague of mine um, at Twitter, Janen Kamdar, who went on to be, he was a VP of product at BuzzFeed for a while. And now he's at a, at a health tech startup. And Janen's like, one of my favorite PMs and he's just one of my favorite humans in the world because he just is so enthusiastic and he has, he's like so tireless and he cares so much about shipping great stuff. And I helped facilitate this, but it was all Janen's work, but it's still something that I'm really proud of and like just being able to work with Janen on this um, while, uh, while we were together at Twitter, which is essentially the putting replies, connecting replies on the timeline, which now everybody takes for granted, but we did that back in 2013, I think. Um, of essentially taking a reply. And at the time, there were blue lines between the two avatars. Now they're gray. And I love that that feature for a couple of reasons. One is that it stemmed from a real, a real need that customers were having with Twitter, which is in the old days when, when tweets were in pure like reverse chronological order, except for retweets, which could break that, but like they were in pure reverse chronological order. As you're reading your timeline, scrolling in reverse chron, you kind of had to keep tweets in your head as a stack. And then when you saw something that was, like you would see the reply before you saw the initiating, mm. if you were going in reverse chrono, which most people did because the newest tweets were at the top and you were scrolling this way, you'd, keep, you'd see the reply before you saw the thing that someone was replying to. And so you had to keep that in your head so that when you saw the thing that they were replying to, you're like, oh, now we get the joke. And it's this like really complicated thing to go do in reverse cron, like to like read that way. And so we did a lot of, and Janen led this, but we did a lot of like prototyping and development with design and did a whole bunch of different models of like different ways to actually do conversation um, at Twitter. And now like they've evolved to where it feels much more threaded and much more like nested replies. And But we did a whole bunch of iteration on that and ended up being really proud of the thing that, that Janen ended up shipping, which is the simple, like, you know, all the logic that for a thing that looks simple like underneath, there's a lot of logic about when do you show the replies? How do you connect them? Yeah. What's the logic behind it? And I'm that's the thing I'm most proud of, like, in my time there. Like, we did a whole bunch of other stuff and put photos in the timeline, and we put the reply and retweet buttons and things in the timeline, and we shifted, like, a whole bunch of stuff to being mobile-first product development and blah, 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 blah. Like, the company blew up and did a bunch of, like, more product development. We bought Vine. We bought Crashlytics. Like, there's a bunch of things that happened while I was there. But that simple thing of connecting tweets was something that solved a real user problem and was, I think, a really elegant solution that required lots and lots of iteration and research to make it happen. And it's uh, it's just, for me, is like this great thing of like being able to be a part of a team that that shipped that was was really fun and inspiring. That's awesome. How about the failure? And it can be at any, you know, across something that you thought would do so well, a product feature or, or a growth strategy, and then it just... You know. Well, there are a bunch of things that you learn over time 
I mean, there's some things that we learned at Twitter, and then I, I talk about the big failure, which was like my startup was a massive failure, but it was a lot of fun, and we had we we learned a whole bunch of stuff. And as they say on the internet, it was an incredible journey. But the uh, one of the things that like was always a siren song, siren for us at Twitter was how do you actually? And we see this like you see this in social products all the time, and 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 media products all the time, which is if we could only like get someone in and give them the perfect timeline, like without any, without any configuration. And we knew all these things about them. And then like, they would have this perfect content experience and it would just be like, they wouldn't have to do any work and they, then they would be magically engaged and would retain. And basically that never really works. The more that you do upfront, like a, it's really, really hard to give someone a magic timeline without a lot of data about them. And so we did a bunch of things to try to get more data about you, either like before you registered or as you registered and going through onboarding experiences and picking accounts and picking whatever. We weren't doing algorithmic timeline. It was a reverse chronological timeline. So if you if we recommend brands that you want to follow, like, you know, media brands or celebrities, like they could end up, especially media brands, they were learning like the more they tweet, the more traffic they get. So you could end up like all right, yeah, you definitely want to follow TechCrunch and CNET and the New York Times and blah, 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 blah. And then you end up with this timeline that is just like a headline newsfeed and that is not engaging. And so the thing that you like you learn over and over and over again is that like the more work that people put into crafting their experience, the more success and like ownership they feel over that. And they'll do a better job of that. And so if you give people the tools and you trust them to craft their own experience and the value proposition is clear then you'll have a more highly engaged user as opposed to trying to magically create this perfect content experience the moment they land. So that's one. So we learned that. We had that mistake a whole bunch of times. That's a really good lesson. I'm going to put that in like the little things in the end of the podcast. <laughs> it's a good lesson. Talk show was an interesting one. Talk show, um, the idea for talk show was um, uh, the tagline, which is basically will tell you everything about the product, was um, texting in public. So it was an idea that like there's, Billions of people on the planet that actually send text messages, some of them have to be really, really good at it. And so and if you gave them a platform to do that in public, you could create interesting shows and media stars out of people that are really good at, at texting. Oh, that sounds entertaining. I feel like there's, I, I sometimes read conversations. There's apps that do that now. There, yeah, there's like... Everyone, like stories like, over text, right? You just see... Yeah, so there's a bunch of the story stuff that happens over text. Um we were trying to go for a live experience, like this is 2015, right? So like live was a big thing. You were too early. Yeah. And so we were a little too early. And also we learned we learned we could ship a product really fast. So we had a great team and we shipped something fast. We learned that we could drive some buzz and activity. So um, it was an interesting concept. We got featured in the App Store. We knew we learned that we could drive downloads and drive engagement. Um, and so we had lots of people chatting, but what we learned is that it's not a really compelling media experience. Um, and so we couldn't get enough people actually watching and tuning in. And so it became essentially just a, like a chat room for folks that was like happened to be in public. And then we, we tried a whole bunch of different things to get like to create more kind of literal talk show dynamics of like guests and invite people up and then kick them out and like they can raise their hand and questions and emoji reactions and all the things to make it feel more performative. But it really came down to it wasn't it, it didn't make sense as a live experience. And if it didn't make sense as a live experience, we didn't really need to build an app. Like you could essentially like have, we could have this conversation over text and we could publish the transcript and we could edit it and actually make it a much more compelling thing for the reader. And so 
the good thing is that we learned that in about six months of the product being in market, and then we just decided to kill it because mm. um, and go try something different. It was an incredibly fun lesson to learn, but it was definitely hard because as the founder and CEO, it was my product idea. And so it was very humbling to have that like, yeah, that product idea, not so good, like didn't actually work. And I think there are things like you look now, at, there's the app Clubhouse, which has a lot of buzz and raised a bunch of money and is actually a really engaging product experience for the people that are in the, that are in the beta. And uh, it turns out like audio is like a much more engaging and compelling experience for that type of conversation than texting. And so, you know, there's some things that we're learning like over time. And then, so that was a, that was a humbling failure, but like, I love the team that, that we had and we basically like, we shut down that product and then we took, and I had great investors and advisors and they were like, great, all right, didn't work, what's next? And so we started to build a um, podcast um, kind of search and discovery tool and then um, ended up chatting with Ev about kind of subscription economics and content and things like that. And, and then he was like, hey, why don't, why don't we join forces? And that's when I joined, we sold talk show to Medium and I joined Medium in 2017. That's awesome. You're also getting me to actually try Clubhouse. I have an invite and I, I have it, but I haven't opened it because it seemed so, this guy that re- recommended who are sub-branch was like, oh, and you're just there with all these famous people. And I'm like, I'm like nervous. I don't, I don't want to like them to see me, but okay, <laughs> now you've convinced me. You should try it out. It's famous among dozens. It's like famous in like, you know, tech and whatever. Like <laughs> occasionally there's an actual celebrity, but it's mostly like you'll join, you'll recognize a bunch of names. And it's, and it's fun that way right now because it's like a few thousand people that a lot of whom know each other or know of each other. And so you recognize names and people that are there that are hanging out. And you're like, oh, yeah. I'll join. I'll join. I mean, I, I mean it. I just like never opened the app. I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to Medium. Uh, what are some like ways you guys have driven growth? How do you think about the future growth strategies for Medium? The number one way that we think about driving growth is about serving content creators. If you think about the overall ways that we could drive growth for Medium, it's you can, we can make a better reading experience, which we are doing, um, and improving kind of reading and discovery for people that have already found Medium, right? And like get them more engaged. You could build a better onboarding flow. We talked a little bit about that. Like you could, uh, subscription products, so we could build a better conversion funnel. And each of those, you could maybe get whatever X you think it is, but it's probably single digit Xs in terms of improvements that you could get, right? Maybe you could make a 10X better reading experience if you think like, and people would read 10 times as many stories, then you're running up against like how much time and attention do they have during the day. You could build a, you know, two or three X more efficient conversion funnel, which is important. And we have to go do that uh, because like, and then you get more subscribers and you improve your messaging and you improve the value proposition of like why you should be a, a subscriber and a member and pay us five bucks a month. The real engine of growth is the thing that people come for, which is uh, great stories. And so for us, it's really about how do we um, build a great writing experience, as you were talking about, in order to have people love writing on Medium so that we have uh, content that you can't get and stories that you can't get anywhere else. Because that's the thing that will drive, you know, through... You can do a whole bunch of tactics on top of that in terms of like helping people like drive social engagement and you can make things more efficient for search and the bots to, to come discover your content. But really at its core, the core of what we need to be doing is building better content creation experiences for people to express themselves, to share their ideas, 
and to reach an audience and, you know, potentially if they want to monetize that audience so that we become the best place on the internet for, um, for writing and sharing ideas. Like that's our mission. That's what we have to do. And that's really the growth strategy is invest in those tools so that we have more and more stories from more people around the world and different perspectives, uh, because that's what will end up driving. That's what will end up driving growth. Um, and so it's really a, it's a long-term play for us. Like this is the, uh, the thing that we're, that we're doing is it's, it's not about any one individual, uh, tactic. Like the overall strategy is to build essentially a better place for the world to share and, and spread good ideas. That's the thing that we have to go do. That's awesome. So I think the other interesting thing I noticed, and you guys did this early on, is like, you know, when we talk about mobile, people always talk about web and app, and you guys definitely double down on the app. And I'm very proud that you guys have used Branch to bring more people into the app. But tell us a little bit how you, why is the app so important, both from a writer and a reader experience, and how important is mobile in general for Medium? Well, super important for Medium. I mean, we have a lot of traffic to desktop web because we have a lot of professional content and they're especially like people are spending more time like big screens like at work and they'll go search for a particular topic and they'll end up on a Medium article that'll help them solve a particular problem they have. Where we see deeper engagement and where we see people that have deeper relationships with Medium is when it becomes part of their day-to-day life and that means like on their phone. And so it's been really important for us to create um, a really fantastic and like engaging reading experience on the device. And so that's meant like from very early on an investment in making, you know, we pay really close attention to frames per second and making sure that as you scroll through even really long articles that the performance is there, giving you the kind of delightful tools. Like one of my favorite features of our app is one of the features of Medium is being able to highlight sentences or passages in stories that you love yeah. both to save them for yourself and also as a social signal for other readers. I love that and, feature. Yeah, it's such a great feature. And so, um, but my favorite thing about the, there are two things about that experience in the mobile app that I really enjoy. One is in the iOS app, you can tap on a sentence, you can tap on a sentence and essentially the, the whole sentence is automatically highlighted for you so that you don't have to do the awkward, like drag your thumb to the right thing. Like, if you just tap on a sentence, it automatically thinks like, all right, we're going we're gonna to highlight that sentence for you. And then being able to share those in a really elegant way out to the rest of the internet is like an image and a highlight. And like, it's those types of things that we can do in the app that, that make the experience just of reading, the core reading experience, really tactile and engaging and, and interesting. And then if you layer on all the capabilities that that mobile gives you, and we're in the middle of reworking the app right now and experimenting with a lot of really fun experiences to go navigate and find publications and authors that you love and dive into stories that you love and give feedback and, you know, applaud for the writer and basically like plus push notifications and all the things that bring you back. It's the way that people really build deeper relationships with Medium and the writers and the publications that are on Medium. And so that's why the investment is there. And so, and that's why it's important for us to, you know, to make sure that people are aware because, when people are coming from a search result, either on their phone or on desktop or whatever, like you may not, you have to get introduced to Medium and a way for us to essentially signal that Medium as a platform is to let people know about the app, right? And to help people into the app. But you guys do such a good job. I mean, you know, with our with our Journeys product, I think you can have the most 
pop up <laughs> you you can you can go and design your own experience right and i think my advice has always been to be unintrusive and really think about it as dating but not everyone does that and they're like oh but i built this big pop up i'm like yeah that's like for later <laughs> you don't shouldn't start and you guys do such a good job with that so um we've really learned over the past year or so the best way to use um to use the branch product in like really high intent moments and to find ways um, at the right moment to, to essentially educate folks about the app and then using kind of persistent links that we have in product that use kind of branch deep linking to get people into the app to individual stories. And so, and finding that right balance to like not interrupt the reader experience and to make it, um, but also to have like the capabilities of like us not having to do all the detection work of like, are they on Android, are they on iOS, what link do we provide, all of that, all of that stuff that you guys do behind the scenes helps makes that makes that experience possible. Awesome. I think the one question uh, I, I, I would left this towards the end, because I think that was really exciting for me. You, you really talk about the power of optimism and how it's fundamental to in order to make things. And I'd love to hear more about that. I think it's just such a you know, it's it's hard to be an optimist, especially as a product. I was a product manager for a year. I sucked at it. And I think like it was hard to be an optimist when you launch products and there's bugs. And so tell us more. <laughs> there's basically everything in the world is conspiring against you being an optimist, right? Like, yeah, if you read the news, it's not a terribly optimistic view of the world. If you look at what's going on in the world, like it's like it's really hard to be an optimist. But I really like fundamentally believe that creativity and creating things is a, is in and of itself an optimistic act, which is this belief that you can make things better for the world or for some people in the world by the things that you create. It's like this, you have to have optimism to be a creator. And I look at doing, being a product manager as like you're basically inspiring people to create. And so you have to have optimism that like, you can that you can find a problem that people have, that you can design a solution to solve that problem, that you can make something People didn't even know they wanted didn't, that solved a problem they didn't know they had, and that you can make their day to day life better, and you can make like the people that you work with, you can make their lives better. And so it requires like I fundamentally, in the core of my being, believe that like creation, and especially in our industry, is an is an act of optimism, and it means that you have to. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a realist. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't like like do pre-mortems or figure out how people will abuse your product or figure out all of the downsides that could come from the things you create. But at your core, if you're not an optimistic product person or an optimistic product builder, it's very easy to be discouraged and to be cynical about the things that you create. I think that's really dangerous to not be, to be a creator and not be an optimist, I think ends up with like not great products that are being built. I get it, but I think I'm an optimist myself, and I, I, um, I think it is very hard, but I just can't imagine it any other way. Yeah, I mean, it's otherwise you wouldn't have started a company. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> the, the ads, uh, ads. I mean, there's, are, there's a fine, right, right. There's and we a fine fail. line between de, between delusion and optimism, right? <laughs> there's something about like a belief that you can go make something better. You have to have that belief, like otherwise, like why do it? I mean, it's. It's too hard. This is the other thing. Making things is really hard because you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be like ready to like take stuff on that like people are going to like basically yell at you for. And so 
if you go into something with like, I think the, like the thing that I've been chewing on is like the opposite of optimism isn't pessimism. I think the opposite of optimism is fear. And if you're afraid, right, like optimism is like courageous and you have to be courageous to go put something new into the world because it's really, really easy for people to tell you that you suck. Um, and I've had lots and lots of people tell me over like my over many freaking years doing this that I suck. And that's all right. Well, they're not in the arena, right? Do you know that uh, quote? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. I, right, yeah, I, right, I, exactly. I put that, at, but I, I really identify with that. Is you know, we, you, we branches our fourth idea. We failed three times, <laughs> and it was like miserable. And I still think like I try and I fail in my job, and it's very easy to be the critic that sits on the sidelines. Absolutely. Any advice outside of this that you have for someone trying to get into product for a younger version of you? I have this one line that I tell people. Um, and I've given this talk before, but it's basically like the thing that you can do to learn how to be a better product manager is basically ruthlessly prioritize everything in your life. Like the job of a product manager is about really about prioritization. If you think about like just even just like classic scrum, like what are you doing? You're putting epics in a backlog and you're prioritizing that. And then you're writing user stories inside those epics and you're prioritizing those. Like it's all about prioritization. And so the hack that I tell people to like just to practice how to be a product manager is like you never write an unordered list and like a good a great meeting hack whenever you're back in a room with people at a conference in a in a conference room at a whiteboard and someone writes a list of things on the board like like after they finish writing the list you basically like you can just go put one two three four next to their bullets and it'll immediately spark a conversation because now you're not just like making the list, you're actually prioritizing the list. And then you have to have a real conversation about how are you prioritizing things? And I'm still learning how to do this. Like, because I love coming up with ideas and then it gets, it's really, really hard to put those ideas into an execution order or a priority order. And like the more times at bat that you have doing that, the more like turns of the crank that you have making prioritized lists and being ruthless about prioritization and being able to draw that cut line, like that's all product management is. And that is like, that's the core of it. And so the more opportunities that you have to go prioritize things and like get out of like the bulleted list mode and into an ordered list mode, it like actually forces you to think like a PM. You've inspired me to rethink the way we're doing Q3 marketing prioritization. <laughs> this is really awesome. Like, what are the things that you, you know, what's one, two, and three on the list? And if you don't get to four, it's, it's fine. Draw the cut line. Where's your cut line? That's such good advice. I don't think we always come up with ideas and then we're like, okay, but which ones are we going to do? But I think the idea of actually putting them in order on a list makes a ton of sense and I'm going to I'm gonna use it. I learned something. I got inspired with one thing today. Well, more than one, but this one I'm going to put into practice <laughs> this week when we start planning. So this was awesome. We're going to end with three fun questions. So these are like a little bit, you know, not as serious as the ones before. So question number one, if you had to delete all the apps on your phone, except one, which one would it be? Oh, um, probably just like the messages app because it's how I like am connected with friends and connected with family. And it's like where I share jokes with my daughters and where I know that like they're not going to give up. I have two teenagers, right? So like they're not going to give up my messages. And so... That's probably the one I would keep. Like if I had to get rid of everything else, that's probably the one I would keep. That is a fair answer. If you had an app to talk to an animal or a type of animal, 
Which animal would that be? Oh, it would be my dog Scout. So I have I have a Havanese. He's eleven pounds. He is like basically a barky lap dog, and he's really stressed out all the time. He barks at everything that comes into my house, and it's sort of like I just want to talk with him and tell him it's it's okay. You don't need to bark. It's okay. Instead of me getting upset with him like that he's barking, it's like, hey, it, it's okay. You don't. You're okay. And I just want to tell him, like, he's okay. You can hear my dog bike in the background. She's like seven pounds. Right, right. It's like that. I just want to be able to, like, scout, chill, bud. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. No one's out to hurt you. What's the most unlikely app on your phone? The most unlikely right now. So, like, I'm sort of a, it's not terribly unlikely because I'm like a, like a, you know, middle-aged white guy. So, I have, like, the Nike app and the and the GOAT, like, greatest of all time app to, like, find sneakers because I oh, love yeah. buying sneakers. And that's just like kind of like boring tech. No, GOAT is awesome. But the most unlikely one, given what we're in right now that I haven't deleted yet because I still have hope, is the Ticketmaster app because I love seeing live events. And right now I can't see live events. And so I look at these apps. I'm like, should I delete that? I'm like, I can't. I just can't put it. I can't bring myself. Don't do it. I can't like I can't bring myself to delete the Ticketmaster app because at some point we're going to be able to like go and see a show again. So that's. That's the one that I won't get rid of. I, I, I logged in on like Lightning in a Bottle is a festival I used to go to. And I actually, it's on Twitch now. <laughs> it was on Twitch last weekend. So I like joined. It was not the same. I will tell you that. But it was better than nothing. Yeah, better than, I mean, I love like, you know, like Radiohead's doing like YouTube things once a month. And like they did one today. I'm just like. We will have concerts. It might, they might look slightly different. Might. But we will have yeah, concerts for sure. back. For sure. It might take a year, yeah. but I think. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was uh, awesome. It was great having you, and I learned so much today. So, so fun. really, really appreciate so your time. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Mana. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing. Keep growing.